Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. So, Ray, can you can you finish us up in chapter 19, verses 37 to 42? 37 to 42. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Consider what's happening here. God had prepared Joseph and Nicodemus, two members of the Sanhedrin, to bury the body of Jesus. Now, this is the third time we hear of Nicodemus and in the book of John, and it appears that at last he's coming out boldly as a follower of Jesus. And we should be careful not to criticize Joseph for being a, quote, secret disciple, as as the text mentions. For we can see how God used him and Nicodemus to accomplish God's purposes. Had their faith been known openly, they would have been prevented by the council for caring for the body of Jesus. In fact, when Joseph and Nicodemus touched the dead body of Jesus, they defiled themselves for the Passover. But they didn't care for they had come to trust the Lamb of God himself. Let's pause here for some comments and questions, and then we'll dive in and talk about the resurrection. Joe. You know, it's interesting. We take a look at Holy Week, and Jesus, it's only five days since his triumphal entry into the city, and now it's Friday morning. And we, we say, how can it be that this mob calls for his crucifixion. And and if you notice, we read in in, um, chapter 19 that as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. So I'll remind all of us, you go back a few days and their concern when Jesus is performing miracles in this last week and he's teaching in the temple, he said, what are we going to do? It's Caiaphas who says this in chapter 14. He said, what are, they asked, what are we accomplishing? Uh, here is the man performing many miracle, miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Then one of them, Caiaphas, the high priest, that year spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize it is better for you that one man should die for the people than the nation perish. Caiaphas, from the beginning, led this mob and he was determined to destroy Jesus. Pat and Joe. 
It is good that we spend so much time in this Gospel of John because it is really dense with meaning. And I just wanted to amplify a couple of points that you brought out. When Pilate has Jesus flogged, he brings him out and famously says, behold the man. And at that point, he is like the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He has been scourged. It is by his wounds that we are healed. And as you pointed out, he's silent before Pilate, Isaiah 53. The sheep is silent before the sharers. Eventually, the suffering servant is buried in a rich man's tomb. So you have basically Isaiah looking 700 years ahead is describing the crucifixion scene. Mm. The other point, going back to chapter 18, and you, you commented on this, where Judas is standing with those who come to arrest Jesus. So he has, and it, we can think of to stand as to set out a position. Judas is standing with the enemies of God. And as soon as Jesus says, I am, they all fall. So if you stand with the enemies of God, you will not stand long. Two points. First, to go along with what Joe said, how pathetic is it that one man should die for us? It was very pathetic in that. The other thing I found interesting, a little parallelism. In the old Jewish record, in order, you had the two goats, the scapegoat. And the scapegoat had to have the hands laid on to him, you know, so the sins of the, the people to be put upon that scapegoat. And then, of course, the other one was killed. In Jesus and Barabbas by Jesus, we have the same thing. Jesus is slapped. So he has a form. His hands been put on by the priest. And then they release Jesus Bardone over. They release uh, Barabbas. And so it's kind of an interesting parallel that what was in the past God did with Jesus as the scapegoat, that being Barabbas. Jim Love? The brashness of Peter, I guess I'll, I'll chat about. You know, this is, uh, I was impressed also that Peter takes on this whole cohort by himself, right? But this is the brash Peter, because it doesn't last, right? This courage kind of goes away before you know it, he's hiding. And, you know, this brashness comes out where you're going to read it maybe in 21, where when Jesus meets him in Galilee and the disciples say, hey, there's Jesus on the shore. He throws himself into the water. You know, this brash, passionate guy is also hiding later, a little bit later from a slave girl. Right. And so to me, this is Peter's flesh. Right. Not courage. Courage would last. Later on, when he's transformed, he walks to his own cross and, and insists on being crucified upside down. That's a transformed man filled with the spirit, right? But now you have this combination of brash and coward, and that's just human flesh, and that's our flesh, right? We, we need the Holy Spirit. And just leave me one, one more comment about Pilate here and Jesus. Uh, you know, at the beginning... I often wondered how this would go because G Jesus, Pilate, bring him out, bring Jesus out. I want to talk to him. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, well, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? And if Pilate says, no, I want to know, man, does that change the story?
Mm. That's gonna, that totally changes the story because he will reveal himself to seekers. He he would have begun to explain himself to Pilate just like any honest seeker. But later, when he asked Jesus, where are you from? Jesus gives him no answer, right? Because often he sits there and reveals himself in that manner. He says, I know where I've come from and where I'm going. This is how he reveals himself to his disciples. But to Pilate, he gets no answer. Where are you from? He gets no answer because it's not a sincere question. He's not really seeking Jesus. Jesus reveals himself to those who are truly seeking him. Mm. Great, great thoughts. Bob? Well, I, just, I have a question that just continues to bother me, so I'll ask it. Why is it that the group of soldiers that came to get Jesus when he said, I am, why did they all fall to the ground? And then they got up and arrested him. That, that is so inconsistent. I can't figure out why that's in there. Yeah. Well, it's in there because it happened. What I think is I think they thought maybe it was just some like crazy wind that blew them over. They, they couldn't connect. They couldn't because they're blinded. They didn't connect what was really happening. So they, they had to explain. It was like that was like some crazy wind that just blew us over. So, you know what I mean? It's a great question. It'll be a great question to ask when we get to heaven someday. One of the interesting questions or the statements in this is when Pontius makes the <laughs> statement, who is or what is the truth, which clearly tells us he does not know the truth. Mm. So, but I love reading the story of Pontius and Christ because what's amazing about it is scripture is clear. We show our love to the Lord by our obedience and Christ. There was never a moment he wasn't in control but we see him absolutely submitting to the will of God. Mm. So this is such an expression of such deep love. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Amen. Yeah. It seems so chaotic, but it's all happening to fulfill all these prophecies. And it's just amazing. You can't, you know, statistically, you can't make that happen. He, he, he answers in a way only Christ would answer. Are you a king? You say that I am. Why did he ask him that question? He was the most powerful man. He asked him a second time, are you a king? Not of this world. He never denies the truth. Mm -hmm. The truth is before him, but he's denying the truth. Yeah, answered away. They fell down. Jesus revealed his glory in revealing his name. I am. And it reveals the hardness of the human heart in rejecting God's glory, rejecting his love, that in spite of having his glory revealed, they still went ahead and arrested him. Mm. Good thought. Go back for just a moment to the discussion about Peter. We know Peter goofed up. He professed to be so strong and, and sincere, he denies Jesus three times. But in Mark chapter 16, 7, when the women went to the tomb to anoint the body, the angel said to them, Go tell his disciples and Peter uh -huh. that he's going into before you. He still loved him. Yeah. I mean, throughout throughout New Testament, we see people who Jesus loved and failed, but he doesn't throw them out. Yeah. That's a good lesson for us. It's an awesome lesson for us. We're going to continue talking about Peter. So let's dive in. We're going to look at chapter 20. I'm just going to summarize this. So Mary comes to the tomb while it was still dark. Now, Jesus had cast seven demons out of Mary, so she loved him deeply. But in her confusion and disappointment, 
she jumps to the conclusions that somebody stole Christ's body. So she ran and told Peter and John, who in turn visit the tomb. And it's funny that John says that he outran Peter, which might be because he was younger. But John and Peter kind of, you know, there's this thing going on between them, which I think is kind of interesting. They talked about who's the greatest, and we're going to get to that in a second. But what did the men see in the tomb? They saw burial wrappings, but no body. The one for Jesus's head was carefully folded, lying by itself. Now, do you think that looks like a scene of a grave robbery? The way it was laid out? Absolutely not. Who could volunteer to read this next section? But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been laid, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Just some interesting things about it. I really do want to get to Peter, so we're going to kind of fly over this part. But look at verse 10. At verse 10 ends, it says, the disciples went back to their homes. But I love the beginning of verse 11, but Mary, but Mary didn't, but uh, Mary didn't, Mary stayed. And because she stayed, she met the risen Christ. Now, first she saw these two angels in the tomb and that, that couldn't even comfort her. And, and heck, the angels didn't even have to say, do not be afraid, fear not. You know how when the angels show up in the Bible, they're always like, fear not, don't be afraid. I mean, Mary was so distraught, they didn't even have to say that to her. The two angels, by the way, some people will say, remind us of the mercy seat, which is described in Exodus 25, verses 17 to 19, that there's angels in, in the mercy seat. Well, she turns away from the angels and talks to this guy that she thinks is a gardener. But then when he says her name, when he says her name, she, figures, she understands it's Jesus. That's when she comes to believe in him for the first time. And what's interesting here is that the first thing Jesus does is send her out on a mission. <laughs> he sends her away. She wants to hold on to him as long as she can. But he says, you got to let me go. And in fact, I have an assignment for you. Imagine how difficult it would have been for Mary to leave Jesus. Like, I mean, she did not want him out of her sight. But Jesus said, no, you got to go. You got to go tell, tell the others. Yes. Quick question from Zoom Land. It is mentioned a couple of times that he appeared to people that knew him, but they did not recognize him. How can that be? Is there an explanation? There's lots of theories on why they couldn't recognize him. Some people say that because he's had all the scars, 
that he still looked like the Jesus on the cross. So he wasn't really appealing. I, I don't know if that's true, but the resurrected body, our resurrected bodies are going to be different than, than our normal bodies. So maybe he looked like a 25 year old, you know, maybe he looked younger. We don't know. We don't know. Jim, you want to say something real quick? Just uh, how, how it works in the Christian life. Jesus reveals himself to us through relationship. Right. So he calls Mary when she he said he utters her name. That's revealing himself to her soul, not necessarily to human sight. He that's how he my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And he utters her name in relationship and she recognizes him. Right. That's how he's to be beheld, mm. uh, not necessarily in human eyes. That's a good thought. Okay, so I'm just going to summarize this next section. Jesus goes and it, to be with his disciples. The doors are locked because they're still kind of living in fear. But Jesus comes into the room while the doors are locked. And I love, so apparently our resurrected bodies can walk through walls. Maybe it's kind of like C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Great Divorce. Anybody read that book, The Great Divorce? Where our resurrected bodies are more solid in fact, they're so solid that walls seem like vapors. You can walk right through them. I don't know. He walked through the walls. And then he comes to Thomas, and Thomas is the one, and he, he deals graciously with Thomas. The end of ch chapter 20 ends with this beautiful statement. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And by believing you may have life in his name. It's like the perfect ending to his gospel. Why didn't he just end it right there? Maybe, maybe he did, but it seems like the Holy spirit inspired him to write one more chapter. And I think the reason he inspired him had to do with Peter. He had to tell the story of Peter because the last time we hear of Peter, he denied him three times. What happens to Peter? So I almost picture John writes this and he goes to bed that night at peace thinking, ah, perfect ending to my, my book on Jesus. But then the Holy Spirit starts reminding him, oh no, you didn't even tell that what happens with Peter because you can't really understand the book of Acts. You know, there's like, what, what happened to this guy? So, so anyway, chapter 21. So the, the chapter begins with seven disciples we like the number seven. There were seven disciples and they're all hanging out in Galilee. And Peter says, he decides he's going to go back to his old profession. I'm going to go fishing. And because he's a good leader, the other guys say, I'm going with you. So they all go fishing. Jesus shows up. They don't catch anything. It's a horrible night of fishing. They don't recognize Jesus right away. But just like in Luke chapter five, verses one to 11, Jesus gives them fishing advice, and the results are a miraculous catch of fish. In fact, 153 fish. There are several miracles to note here besides the catch of fish. Did you notice in Peter's given miraculous strength to draw up the net? The seven men were not able to pull those fish in, but, but somehow Peter, if you look at verses 6 and 11, he was able to pull in the nets. The fact that the net didn't break is amazing. 
The fire on the coals and the cooked breakfast were supplied miraculously. Jesus already had breakfast going for the disciples. And like Jim Love said, it was all about relationship. Jesus was trying to get back in relationship. So this entire scene was meant to awaken Peter's conscience and open his eyes. The catch of fish reminded him of his past decision to forsake all and follow Christ. The fire and the coals would take him back to his denial because remember his denials? He was, he was standing around a fire with coals on it. And the location, the Sea of Galilee, reminded him of so many past experiences with Jesus, feeding 5,000 people, walking on the water, catching the fish with the coin in it, stilling the storm, all these experiences. But since he denied Jesus publicly, he would need to be restored publicly. Chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. Maybe just big Dan since he's right there. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So the issue here is Peter's love for Christ. If a man really loves Christ, his life will be devoted and dedicated. Note that Jesus gives Peter a new commission. He's not only to be a fisher of men, but he's to be a shepherd besides being a fisher of men. A shepherd who would shepherd the lambs and, and feed the sheep, the word of God. But when Jesus said, do you love me more than these? What are the these? Was he pointing to the fish and his fishing equipment? Or was he pointing to the other disciples? That's a big uh, thing to think about. Was it, what was Jesus referring to when he said, do you love me more than these? I think there's a good case for both because both can apply to us today. I mean, you can ask yourself, do you love Jesus more than you love your career? I hope you do. But you can also ask, do you love Jesus more than comparing yourself with other people? You can make a solid case for, bo for both of these, what, what the these is. But let's, let's look at what Peter said before he denied Jesus. This is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 33 to 35. Peter said, though everyone else will fall away because of you, I will never fall away. This is what Peter said, how confident he was at his dedication to Jesus. And then Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then what does Peter say to that? He says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Commentators also make this interesting observation because there's four different words for love in Greek. Gape is kind of like the sacrificial, most committed love. Phileo is like a brotherly love. 
And in these verses, Jesus basically says, do you love me with a sacrificial, fully committed love? And Peter says, Jesus, you know, I love you as a brother. And so he asked him again, and he says, you know, I love you as a brother. But then Jesus changes and says, do you love me as a brother? And he says, yes, I love you as a brother. Now, those two different Greek words may or may not mean something, but we got to remember this. When this conversation took place, it wasn't taking place in Greek. It was spoken in Aramaic. So that's why we shouldn't make too much of the, the differences here. But what I think is happening with Peter is, remember how confident Peter was? I will never deny you. I think what Peter got himself to a place is, you know what, Jesus, you know me better than I know myself. And I think that's a healthy place for us to be as disciples, to say, you know what, you know what, God, you know my heart way better than I know myself. It's like when somebody, a man might say, I will never commit adultery. I will never hurt somebody. I will, you know, be careful when you say those kind of things, right? Because you're a man, you're a sinner. What I love about where Peter got himself to is he got himself to a point where he wasn't confident in himself, but he found his confidence in Jesus. And that's why Jesus said, what do you need to do? You need to follow me. And here's an interesting thing in this, this next section. What does Peter do immediately after this? It says he turned around and he saw John. And then he said, well, what about him? And isn't that what, I mean, that's what you see Jesus doing all throughout the gospels. Who's the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest? John and John and Peter had this like brotherly, you know, competition going on. Who's going to be the greatest? And so immediately, you know, you think it's like a beautiful ending again, you know, Peter's restored. But then the first thing he does is he said, well, what about him? Which is like, that's not what you're supposed to do, Peter. You don't, you don't compare yourself to other people. He says, who cares what happens to him? You follow me. So I want to end this morning with the story. I don't know if you've heard, you know, the, you know, the song, I've decided to follow Jesus. Have you ever heard the story behind that song? About 150 years ago, there was a great revival in Wales. As a result of this, many missionaries came to the Northeast India to spread the gospel. The region was known as Assam and was comprised of hundreds of tribes who were primitive and aggressive headhunters. Into these hostile, aggressive communities came a group of missionaries from the American Baptist missions, spreading the message of love, peace, and hope in Jesus Christ. Naturally, they were not welcomed. One missionary succeeded in converting a man, his wife, and two children. The man's faith proved to be contagious, and many villagers began to accept Christianity. The chief of that village got very angry. And he summoned all the villagers together. And then he called the family who had first converted to renounce their faith in public or face execution. Moved by the Holy Spirit, the man said, I have decided to follow Jesus. Enraged at, at his refusal of the man, the chief ordered his archers to arrow down the two children as both of the boys lay there, twitching on the floor, the chief asked, will you deny your faith? You've lost both your children, and you will lose your wife too. But you know what the man replied? Though no one joins me, still I will follow.
The chief priest was beside himself with fury and ordered his wife to be arrowed down. In a moment, she joined her two children in death. Now he asks the last time, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of death, the man said one of the most memorable lines, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. And he was shot dead, just like the rest of his family. In their deaths, a miracle took place because the chief who had ordered the deaths and the killings was moved by the faith of the man. And he wondered, why should this man, his wife and two children die for a man who lived in a faraway land, in another country, another continent some 2000 years ago? There must be some remarkable power behind this family's faith, and I want to taste that faith. So in a spontaneous confession of faith, he declared, I too belong to Jesus Christ. And when the crowd heard it, this from the mouth of their chief, the whole village accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. He believed that? All because of one man. All because one man followed Jesus. Men, your life matters to God. You following Jesus matters to God. God wants you to bear lasting fruit with your life. Let's heed the words of Peter. You follow me. That's what it's all about, us following Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for this book of John. Thank you for, man, just so much truth in here. Help us, Lord, to be like Peter, to, to follow you. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. And even when we fail you, Lord, you're, you're right there to take us back. But I pray for each man in this room and any man listening through Zoom that you help us to be the men that you've called us to be, men who follow you and who bear fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast.com at gmail.com stay tuned for our next episode and remember on your worst days you're never beyond the reach of god's grace and on your best days you're never beyond the need of god's grace see you next time